Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, buddy. Good afternoon, Scott. Good evening. Good evening, Good evening Sandy. Think we can't hear Sandy. The microphone's not close enough. Oh, well. Good evening. There we okay, go. Okay, there she is. <laughs> well, that's it for tonight. <laughs> okay, so we're going to be talking about demonology. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be discussing verses 8 through 11. So we talked about the church of Ephesus already. We broke that up into two parts. And because the church at Smyrna received the shortest letter, we may end up talking about the church of Smyrna in just one lesson and one part. Did you so, get to the, the, to the, to the healing in Ephesus that they had a lot of hospitals there that they were training doctors? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. What? In Ephesus. In Ephesus. What about Ephesus? I don't know. They just like that whole symbol with the snakes. Oh, oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. No, I didn't talk about that. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> I get the symbol of the snakes. Yeah. Yeah, no, they they have apparently had a lot of like medical training going on there, or yeah. like medical then. Yeah, they're probably bloodletting. Interesting. And things. <laughs> Leave it to Christy to give us insightful medical facts about ancient Ephesus. All right, so we are uh, we're going to be looking at Smyrna. Good evening, buddy. Okay, <laughs> good evening, Scott. <laughs> we're having a good time this evening. All right, so let's read through the passage and then we'll talk about it. So Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Okay, so there's a lot there to unpack. The synagogue of Satan, the ten days, the crown of life, lots of good stuff to discuss. But first, before we do that, let's talk about Smyrna a little bit. Just give you a little general information about it. Uh, a lot of what I'm about to say applies to all the churches because they were in basically the same area. So Asia Minor, for those who haven't listened to anything else we've talked about in Revelation, and you don't know what Asia Minor is, Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. And so the seven churches were in the province of Asia. It was a Roman province in Western Asia Minor. Okay, so think Western Turkey. Uh, these churches were pretty close to each other. And these churches all were overseen by John. So John is sort of like a bishop. So what's interesting as I've been studying this is the idea of a bishop, like a pastor of pastors. That was something that we see in the New Testament often. So we have people like Paul who plants churches and he has what you might call apostolic ambassadors, people that he would send to, you know, represent him, like to be his eyes in these churches. And you know, they would give messages to the churches. They'd bring messages back to Paul. And so we see the apostles serving as these bishops. But because of the belief in apostolic succession, which is what Catholics believe, this idea of bishops got passed on in their minds from the apostles to their successors. And so they would say that pastors of pastors, that that is an office of the church today. And they would say, of course, that the head of all of those bishops 
is the pontiff, the Pope. And they think that he's Peter's successor. But the reason that I mention it all is because the idea of a pastor over pastors is found in scripture. It's just that these pastors were apostles. And so obviously they were in a unique position that people today aren't because the gift of apostle was given to those who are eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection. And there's nothing in scripture about apostles being chosen after them. I mean, Paul said, I'm the last of all, I'm the last one. And so the idea of more apostles being chosen, you know, to act as successors to those first century ones, that's not biblical. And we've talked about that before, but I just wanted to throw that out there. So that way, you know, you might be able to have a better understanding of how things were going here. So these churches, they would have had many congregations in them. Uh, when I say churches, I mean assembly. There would have been a lot of different congregations within a city like Smyrna. All these cities in Western Asia Minor, they were all pretty large. And if you do a little bit of research on them, they were somewhat uh, affluent. You know, they had a good deal of money and you know, some of them were more prominent than others, but because they were large cities, you would imagine there'd be many house churches, just like we see in the letters that, that Paul writes. There would have been many different congregations there, but they all had a lot in common. Okay. They all no doubt met with each other on occasion together. And first Corinthians, I believe it is Paul mentions all the congregations, all of the church coming together. So I don't know how often they did that. I don't know if they did that a month. Uh, once a month. I don't know if they did it every other week. I have no idea. Uh, but it appears that normally, ordinarily, they would meet in their various congregations and then they would come together. So the reason I go into that detail is because when I read the New Testament growing up, I would read back into it the way I always did church growing up. So I think, okay, what is a church? A church is people, the regular members, and then you have the deacons, and then over the deacons, you have a pastor. And I, I still accepted the idea of many pastors, you know, so you have an assistant pastor, you have a music pastor, you know, I got that. But the idea was there's a senior pastor that's over the deacons and the deacons sort of, you know, act as the go between, you know, and they usually would make up the deacon board. They'd be voting and representing the financial interest of the church. So that's the way that I would always think about church. So when you read the New Testament and it's a little bit different than that. Um, you see Paul in Acts talking to the church of Ephesus and you have all of these elders that he's very familiar with mm -hmm. because he's gone from house to house to house to house where these elders are teaching these congregations, however big they are, we don't know. But we see him addressing these elders as a unit. So together, these churches... Um, when you consider all their congregations and all their elders, there was a plurality of elders, uh, but a lot of times that's misunderstood and you'll have a lot of people arguing for a plurality of elders today. And they'll say, well, that's the way it ought to be in every church. You ought to have multiple elders in every church. And a lot of reformed Baptists are really big into that because they think it's closer to the new Testament, but the missing component in their thinking is house churches. And so when we talk about the church at Ephesus, are we thinking of one congregation mm -hmm. that met in one place? We are, yeah. The biblical data doesn't suggest that, right. but that's what we read back into it. And so when they read about all these elders coming together, they think, oh, well, all these elders are serving in the exact same congregation. But they're yeah, not. They each had their own congregation. They're not, exactly. So uh, that I thought was really insightful. Mm. And, um, you know, that was first pointed out to me by just an article that I read online, but he said, you know, when we're talking about plurality of elders, we have to properly understand what that means. It means that in the city, there were many pastors 
who worked with one another. They knew each other. Okay. Mm. The church was a lot closer. There was no competition. Yes, exactly. And that's another thing to be mindful of that in these churches in the first century, um, I think if they were to come here today and see the way we do things in Jasper, they would be shocked because there are a lot of pastors that don't even know the other pastors. Right. I mean, if Paul came to Pickens County or came to Jasper and he had all their churches come out um, or Let's just say he has all their elders, all their pastors come out. Ha- he would have to serve fried chicken to get them there because most <laughs> yeah, of them they, wouldn't come. Exactly. They probably wouldn't want to come. And they would be like, hey, uh, who are all these people? They wouldn't even know each other. Mm. So I, I'm all about churches um, whenever whenever we can agree on the fundamentals of sound doctrine. Okay, this isn't ecumenism. This isn't you know the ecumenical movement. But when evangelicals can agree on sound basic doctrine, they ought to work together. You know, and put aside their minor differences. Yeah. So, you know, if you have different churches holding different views on the rapture, you know, listen, I'm opinionated when it comes to the rapture. Right. But if someone believes in the Trinity and they believe in free grace gospel, you know, the salvation's a free gift and it's by grace through faith and and they got those basics in place, then I'll work with you and we can Absolutely. we can debate the rapture some other time, yes. you know. And we can do it around the table while we fellowship too. Yes. And so I've seen this in LJ some, I have to brag on the churches up there. Um, evangelical churches in LJ once a year will work together for different things, mm. but specifically the one that I have in mind, the one they do annually is discipleship now mm. and all, they all come together. Awesome. So you, you have like four or five different, uh, you know, evangelical churches who are willing to work with each other sure. and you know, they're like, all right guys, let's that the pastors know each other. Mm. They sometimes will host their chapel services for discipleship in, in one church for one year, and then they'll do it in another church the next year, but they're all coordinating together. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not like a, you know, a me versus you mentality. So I really wish we saw more of that. And that's the yeah. first time I've seen just in my experience, a city having something like that. Yeah. Like the, the pastors of that community, like, honestly, if you were to set them down next to each other and you were to throw out the topic of Calvinism, going to have a debate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Throughout the topic of end times, going to have a debate. But when it comes to the gospel, they agree on that. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, what are we going to do? We're not going to try to fight over these kids. Right. We all agree on the gospel. We all want to see these people come to the Lord. Right. So let's work together. And I'm like, that's awesome. Yes. My little town did that, that I grew up in. It was like 3000 people. And we had like one Baptist church and a charismatic church. And we had a Lutheran church and a Presbyterian church and they would all work together. Like all of us went to all the different vacation Bible schools at all the churches. We all knew each other. Our parents all knew each other. That's awesome. It is. And you know, when it, (laughs) it's sad whenever it comes down to the discipleship process after someone gets saved, there is the educational aspect of things. They're going to be taught doctrine. That's where there's going to be a divide. That's where, you know, the parents of these children, they have to decide where they're going to send their kids. When the kids get old enough, they have to decide themselves. But, um, when it comes to getting saved, like we can work together on that much if we can't work on mm-hmm. other things, you know? That's right. So anyways, I want to throw some of that out. Just give you some context about what churches back then would have looked like in general. Uh, some stuff that uh, I didn't, I didn't think about most of my life. And even when I got to college, man, I didn't like it. When people started talking about house churches, they became a, a popular thing among the circles, you know? that I was in, you know, talking about it. There are lots of different issues came up. Calvinism was probably the biggest one, but we talked about the house church movement. And to me, it just seems so 
it sounded cultish, like these people meeting in their homes just sounded secret. And, and it's funny because I had people point out to me like, well, buddy, this is the way they did it in the early church. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, well, that's the way they had to do it. (laughs) They had to do it that way because they were persecuted and they didn't have the financial wherewithal to come together and, you know, build a building and, and do all this stuff. And I was just so stuck in that that community. Yeah, I was stuck in that mindset and I don't, I really, at the time, I couldn't tell you why exactly. Mm -hmm. It was just, I felt like the way that I did it was the way it needed to be done. I mean, I've uh, seen house churches go off the deep end. And they can, they can, but regular churches can too. Leaderships, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, regular churches can too because, um, that's true. Once (laughs) again, when I was in college, I can remember, uh, one of my professors saying there's this SBC church, SBC, and that they give to the cooperative program. And they had gone off the deep end. And in that congregation, adoptionism was being taught. That's the belief that Jesus became the son of God mm. at his baptism. Mm. And they were teaching this. I and so this the professor yeah. was like, you know, this has got to be corrected. Yeah. We've got to, we've got to take this. If they're going to be in the SBC, like they can't be That's teaching right. heresy. Right. And so this was a, a pretty big congregation. It was enough to get notice. So, yeah. And it wasn't always like that in that church either. Mm. So even big churches in. can go off the deep end. Yeah. One pastor. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that it, starts leading in that yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. And I nobody, mean, nobody stands up for truth. Yeah, right. Absolutely. He's got the top say. And so anyways, there you can go off the deep end in either case, but, um, and, and again, this is not me. If you're listening to this podcast, this is not me knocking on like a conventional church. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, <laughs> no, not. it's not, it's oh, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not knocking on them. Uh, I'm saying that there are problems with joking. it. I know. I know Scott. Uh, but I know that, um, that house churches have their shortcomings too. I mean, they, they don't have as much liberty as bigger churches yeah. to support big endeavors. I get that. Right. We're not going to throw VBS. Yes. But if we could, if house churches could work as communities, that's, that's the, the thing. thing. If a network could be created, like Francis already, Chan's doing out in California. We already have that kind of going sort of. We have some connections. We're, we're, we work, few, we're working, we're working at it. On yeah. And, and yeah. we'll see where that goes. We'd love to see it grow. We'd love yeah. to see network created you know we got people like yeah, we've met Jevin and that's yeah. right up in LJ and so we'd like to see that more and if we could do that then again that expands yeah. the amount of influence that you can have in communities and so anyways but that's just we need a bigger house <laughs> we need a bigger house that's uh, ecclesiology for you and so yeah we could do tent revival we need a commune too. <laughs> a compound a compound okay now we're starting to <laughs> all right <laughs> So, but nowadays, really, I mean, compounds are looking it's better not and better. It's the 60s anymore, Christy. <laughs> we can all have like those shipping container houses. Just don't serve any Kool-Aid. No oh, yeah, right. yeah. And y'all better stop calling me the tallest bearded That's one right. because people are going to get the wrong idea. And the starvation thing. There was a starvation cult. It was in Kenya, I think. Just They just found this cult. Did they die? Someplace. Yeah. Their thing was that this pastor, so-called, was, uh, his thing was, oh, you have to starve yourself to... Um, and die so that you'll be taken to the Lord or something. Oh goodness. Yeah. This just was just recently. Just so you know, if you're listening, that is not us. We actually like to eat a lot. Okay. So (laughs) let's move on. Taco taco. That's right. So let's now talk about uh, what this church represents typologically. So at the beginning of our study of Ephesus, I mentioned the different views of the churches in general. And uh, that's going to come up today because I feel like God's word is so amazing and so intricate that I do believe there are sometimes, not all the time, but I do believe there are layers of meaning. You got to be very careful about yeah. it. 
But we know in the Old Testament, whenever the tabernacle was given on earth, it was given according to a pattern in heaven. So obviously there's meaning beyond the function of it on earth. It represents something else spiritually, something heavenly. But you got to be really careful about that. And I, and I try not to go there unless I have really good reason to. But a number of commentators uh, support the idea, and I agree with them in this case, that these churches, they represent not just the literal local church in the first century, but they go beyond that to represent different kinds of churches. Mm. And they even go beyond that to represent different periods of churches. So obviously Smyrna represents the persecuted church. Okay. Out of all the letters, like they are highlighted as the ones who are being in a situation where, as it says here, they're going to be cast into prison and their challenge is to be faithful unto death. Okay. So obviously they're the persecuted church. Well, what's interesting is this letter follows the one to Ephesus. Ephesus seems to highlight problems that the church was facing towards the end of the first century. Okay. So this would be like the, the church that was still uh, under apostolic authority. And then you shift to the next period. Well, when was the next period? It was the second century. So mm. John dies mm-hmm. and immediately it's like, even at, towards the end of John's life with the emperor Domitian, uh, yeah. persecuting Christians, that's really when it started. I mean, yes, before you had Nero and that's when Peter and Paul died, but it was like in the, the second century, it was just one persecution after another the uh, 200s, the third century, same thing there. And those persecutions lasted for about two centuries. Mm. They weren't like completely continuous. There were some breaks, but it was consistently throughout the second and third century persecutions from these emperors. And there were 10 emperors. Mm. And that's interesting because it mentions these 10 days. And he says, I, I'm going to, uh, well, he's not going to do, he's going to allow the devil, but the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. So these, these 10 days are super interesting because no one knows what they mean. That's why I, hmm. I, I like this stuff because no one really knows. And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, one day we'll find out, but right now there's some hints and some clues that might be insightful. So I'm going to share with you some first, the 10 days. Sorry, Sandy, go ahead. What was your question? I was going to say as an insight, could the, not only the 10 days, but the 10 emperors, emperors represent the 10 kingdoms that come under. That is, that is interesting. Uh, well, those, uh, those, those 10 kings that are under the Antichrist, they're, you know, contemporary with one another. They live at the same time. Um, these emperors, according to this view would be, you know, his, yeah, succeeding each other throughout the course of those 200 years. But I mean, that's interesting. You know, I never thought about that, but I mean, these, these are 10 rulers according to that view. And then we think of the 10 rulers and revelation later on down the road with the antichrist. And so maybe there is a connection there perhaps, but um, the 10 days might equal these 10 emperors and I'll give you their names. I don't have them memorized, but uh, you might recognize at least a couple of them. So in order, they would be Nero Domitian, which was the one who exiled John to Patmos, where he was as he's receiving this. Then you have Trajan that came after him. And I'll stop there real quick as Trajan, he doesn't begin to persecute Christians until his 10th year, hmm. his 10th year. And his persecution lasted 10 years. Interesting. So again, many commentators argue that this is referring to a persecution that was soon to come after John dies. It'll be a new emperor, Trajan, after Domitian, and it's going to last for 10 years. 
and each day represents a year. And there is precedent for that in the Old Testament because, you know, you have Ezekiel lying on his sides. I think it's Ezekiel 4 and each day represents a year. So it wouldn't be crazy to say that these days could represent more than just literal days. Now, I don't want to dismiss the idea that they're literal days. I mean, you could read it here and it makes perfect sense that way. I mean, again, I'll read it. Um, It says the devil shall cast some of you into prison. So that may just be a literal prison where literally a group of these people who live in Smyrna, not all of them, but some of them will be cast into prison and they'll be there for 10 days. And then it seems to suggest that they'll be executed. Mm. So this could be like you live in a community and some of your church members are thrown into prison and they're put to death. So there's nothing crazy about a literal understanding of this. Um, it's just that we don't have anything as far as I've discovered in reading the commentators, we don't have any specific instance to point to mm. other than right here. And that's what I guess inspires the discussion. You know, is there like 10 days literally in a, in a specific group of people in Smyrna that we can say historically, okay, that's what it's talking about. It doesn't appear to be the case that, you know, you can it pinpoint seems like that. there's a lot of people that were killed and thrown into prison to just name out one certain group that was there for 10 days. And that doesn't really seem significant. And so I, I'm of the mind that this is my conclusion. I could be wrong about it. Um, but I, I venture to say that this is probably 10 literal days. However, I do believe it's most likely a dual reference prophecy mm-hmm. in the same sense that these churches are literal churches. Yeah. Okay. They lived in the first century, but yet they represent more than just those local congregations. Right. I think probably the 10 days are the same thing. I think they represent 10 literal days that some of these people were persecuted and lost their lives. But I think those 10 days go beyond that. Again, the 10 emperors are Nero Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, might be familiar with like Hadrian's yeah. wall in Great Britain, exactly. uh, Septimius Severus, uh, Maximian, who's also known as uh, Marcus Aurelius. Y'all ever heard of him? Yeah, okay. we know who that is. Yeah, Decius, his was particularly bad, um, his persecution of Christians. Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian, okay? And the after Diocletian, um, you had Constantine rise up, and he was the one who didn't really champion Christianity as much as just make it legal. And uh, then later on, there was another emperor, Theodosius, who actually made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. I think that was about... Uh, maybe 50 years or so after Constantine, excuse me on the dates, but I mean, Theodosius was towards the end of the three hundreds and Constantine was towards the beginning, but, um, random th- question. Yes. Random question. You said it was particularly bad under Decius. Decius. How yeah. do you spell that? It is D E C I U S. And is Deca 10? Um, I don't know if it's related to that for sure. I'm not positive, but, uh, Decius, if I again, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've brushed up on my church history, but Decius was that emperor who um, was forcing Christians to offer incense to the emperor. And if they did not offer, yeah, and if they did not offer incense, then they would be imprisoned or or executed. Um, And so it was a particularly harsh persecution. Some of these persecutions were not empire wide. Um, like Nero, it was mainly Christians in Rome that bore the brunt of this. It wasn't an empire wide decree to kill Christians everywhere. There are to round them up everywhere. There are, uh, Decius was that way. It became that intense. And so some of these are more local and that's why people will like critique the theory. But again, 
it's not saying necessarily that every single one of these 10 emperors, if that's what the 10 days refers to, it's not saying that each emperor would persecute Christians empire wide. It's just notable persecutions that would be particularly bad and uh, would go down in history. And so I think the idea that the 10 days represent 10 Roman emperors, I think that's logical to give you an example of someone who's argued for this. Um, J Vernon McGee yeah. is an example of someone who's, you know, suggested this, but he's not the only one it's been around for a long time. Uh, but it could also be a figurative expression. This has been suggested by some, they'll point to a verse like Genesis 24, 55 there, the phrase 10 days seems to be um, an expression just meaning a short period of time like we'd say a few days when we say a few days sometimes we don't literally mean three days kind like, of like a month of sundays yeah like li- yeah exactly like literally that'd be a southern expression there but uh literally when we say you know a few days we mean three if we're speaking literally but sometimes we just say a few and you know a broad sense like just give me a handful you know um and it's unspecified undefined so it could be that 10 days just means it's going to be a short time. Now, from their perspective, it may not feel like it's a short time. You know, if you were living during this time period, second century, third century persecution, you know, one after another, it wouldn't seem like a short time. But from God's perspective, it's short. Um, And from the perspective of life, whatever persecution you experience, it will be short because life is short. And that persecution would only, you know, characterize that last part of your life. You know, so these people who are executed, it's only going to last for a bit. You know, you're going to be thrown into prison. You know, you're probably going to have to give your life. Um, you know, you're going to have that choice presented to you, whether or not you're going to, you know, be faithful unto death. But it's only going to last for a short time. So it could be that. I mean, it's possible. Um, but again, I mean, we could always just fall back on and say 10 literal days is the basis the, the, like the basic meaning of the text and there might be more implied there. So I think multiple ideas are intended. I think every single one that I suggested to you has merit to it. I think all those views make sense. Um, to me, I think that the best way to look at it is the 10 days or 10 literal days. And as a type, okay, it's also foreshadowing the 10 emperors that are coming down the road. Um, and dude's name is based on the number 10. Okay. Interesting. But in the the list, it would be one, two, three, four, five, sorry, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He'd be the seventh emperor in that line. But uh, who knows? Maybe it was, I think Decius, you have to fact check me on this, Chris. You got your phone out. I think Decius was the first emperor to persecute Christians empire wide. I think he was the first emperor to, to persecute them that way. And if that's the case, then that might give more credence to the idea that 10 may be a reference to Decius. Before um, Decius reign, persecution of the Christians in the empire had been sporadic and local, but about the beginning of January 250, he issued an edict ordering all citizens to perform a religious sacrifice. There you have it. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows that Decius is the first one to persecute them empire wide. So maybe there's significance to his name 10. Very interesting. And so uh, all we know for sure is that Smyrna represents the church persecuted. And specifically, um, from a typological perspective, for the 200 years of Roman persecution, that would end when Constantine rose to power. And when we get to the next church, um, we see evidence 
that this is written to a time period or for a time period following persecution. And they were dealing with other problems. Pergamos. Uh, we'll talk about them next, but let's now look at the next phrase of interest. Uh, the synagogue of Satan. But really before that, there are a couple things that I want to mention before we move on. Sorry for me being sporadic, but the letter opens up with these things say at the first and the last, which was alive or sorry, which was dead and is alive. And it's very similar to what Jesus said in chapter one, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And so Jesus here in speaking to the persecuted church, he's giving them comfort. Okay. He's reminding them that he's eternal. He offers eternal life to them and he offers eternal reward to them. So whatever they experience, however bad the persecution gets, it's only temporal and that doesn't compare to him, the eternal God. So that's one thing that I wanted to point out. But um, another thing that I thought was interesting, there's a quote by Andrew, uh, Andrew Murray uh, in my study Bible here, and I won't read the whole quote, but he does point out something interesting. He points out that Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches out of the seven that are not told to repent of something. Uh, so th there's no errors in the way they're living their life. And he notes that, isn't it pretty amazing that as holy a God we serve and as wonderful Jesus is, he can look at this church and he could say, no, nah, I've really got nothing to, to say hey, about y'all. You're, you're doing good. Yeah. Like, isn't that encouraging yeah. that he's not saying that they're sinless perfect. and they're yeah. perfect, right. but he's able to look at them and say, you know what? Y'all are doing you're a great right. job. Yeah. You're, like, on, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. Yeah. You're doing good. Now there's challenges coming your way. And he mentions that, but yeah. he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't put a heavy burden on them. He says, y'all are doing good. And so it's encouraging that um, we often as Christians, because especially Christians who understand grace really well, we understand that salvation is absolute. Every sin is significant. It, I mean, even one sin of our life would be enough to condemn us eternally. And so when we talk about God saving us, we know that he's saving us from every one of those little things that often we've forgotten about, you know, mm. but what that sometimes does is whenever we're being sanctified, right? We got that proper understanding of being saved, but whenever we're being sanctified, because we're so keenly aware of how significant each one of those sins is in mm. the eternal scheme of things, we sometimes, yeah, sometimes we beat ourselves up and, um, uh, I think that sometimes we carry that too far. Some people don't take it far enough, right? And they can become self-righteous in their own eyes, but some people take it too far and they think, well, uh, I'm trying, you know, but the Lord's looking at me and he's just probably shaking his head, you know? And other people around us may say, well, I don't think so. I think that y'all are doing really good job. Right. You know? I think he looks at us and laughs. <laughs> like I can't believe they just did that, but I knew they were gonna do it. Yeah. But I, they look what they just did. I think that I think <laughs> yeah, God's definitely got a sense of humor. But I think that God sometimes would say, "Yes, yes, buddy, I know, I, I, I know more than you know that you're not sinless and that you're not perfect. However, okay, you're doing pretty good considering the fact that you still have the flesh." And then you still have a sin nature. And so God can look upon this church, even with their flaws, even with their sins, knowing that they're not perfect and still say, good job. And that's encouraging to me because I, I really, 
I really want to believe that God is looking at my life and saying, buddy, good job. I feel like sometimes um, if the Lord was going to write a letter to me, there's going to be something in it. (laughs) He's going to be like, repent, buddy. It may be as simple as you forgot, you know, your first love, right? Mm. You need to go back to your first love and maybe something like that. But uh, at the same time, it's encouraging to know that who knows? Maybe if the Lord wrote me a letter, he'd say, buddy, I think you're doing a good job right now in your life. Press and on. There's a challenge coming your way, but you're doing good. Just, you know, keep steady, keep strong. So anyways, I thought that was interesting. All right. Now let's talk about the synagogue of Satan, which sounds very interesting. <laughs> um, so it mentions these Jews here in verse number. Gosh, this red letter is killing me in this lighting. But verse number nine. nine says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So these are people who clearly were persecuting Christians um, and they were Jewish. So this is not talking about Roman persecution. This is talking about Jewish persecution. Uh, one commentator mentions in the spirit of that interpretation that we're talking about the second century, the third century, he mentions the martyrdom of Polycarp. So Polycarp would have known John. He would fit perfectly in this period. Uh, he was martyred uh, during the days of Marcus Aurelius, I believe, in 168, or at least close to Marcus Aurelius, if not exactly in his reign. But according to the information we have about Polycarp, Jews gathered sticks on the Sabbath to light his pyre when he was burnt alive. So, awful. And he had so, to be really old. He was very old. Yes, he was. Um, and he was like practically venerated by people because mm. he was, you know, a, a head pastor, um, in Smyrna and, uh, probably the last living person. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. He's one to of the have known a, apostle. Yes. And he may very well have been, um, like Paul appointed Timothy, you know, to, I want you to keep an eye on Ephesus or when he appointed Titus, keep an eye on Crete. Uh, he may have, while John was alive, had that commission. It's possible that if you hold the view that the angels, I'm not, I'm not convinced of this, but if you hold the view that the angels are some kind of apostolic ambassador, some people have suggested that the angel of Smyrna may very well have been Polycarp. Uh, it's possible. We don't know for sure. But uh, when Polycarp was martyred, Jews were present there to encourage it. And okay, you got to understand something. This went so, so crazy wild that you look back and you just hate that it had to happen this way. And it didn't have to happen this way, but um, the church, because they were so viciously persecuted by Jews initially, and it continued on, they were still opposing Christians when Gentiles were getting saved, right? It wasn't just that they were opposing Jews who were leaving Judaism, but they were also opposing Gentile Christians too, like with Polycarp. Polycarp wasn't a Jew. And so you can see how the church would have pronounced an anathema on the Jews. I don't agree with it. It was wrong of them to do so, but you can see that that gap between Gentile Christians and Jews who weren't believers, how it would widen more and more Um, until around the time of Constantine at the council of Nicaea, it was like, we're not even going to use the Jewish calendar to reckon Mm -hmm. the timing of Easter. Like we are because we're not going to have anything to do with the Jews because before they would go to Jews in their community mm-hmm. and they would ask like, you know, what does your calendar say? Like, we're going to keep the Passover according to the Jewish calendar. But 
you know, by the time of Council of Nicaea, they're like, no, we're not going to. We're done. Yeah, we're done with them. And so, you know, that's what happened. They, they, they were swinging in their reaction to that hostility. They were swinging too far off. And uh, that's why Christian missions to Jews were almost non-existent mm-hmm. until the late 1800s. And that's when we start to see Messianic movements starting up in different places and, and Gentile Christians, especially from Great Britain, realizing, hey, this is all part of prophecy. You know, we're in the end times and yeah. they're going to be revived and, you know, God hasn't cast off his people. But uh, for the majority of the Middle Ages, um, you know, they were they were considered the enemies of Christianity. Mm. And that was because, you know, early on. Jews were very much opposed to Christianity and they were very eager to see Christians killed. Not in every case. I'm sure not every Jew would have supported it. Okay. Uh, So we're, we want to be careful, but uh, it was definitely prevalent, you know, enough to find its way in the Bible multiple times. Well, still to this day. Yeah. Israel, right. You can't. Yes. They're very anti-missionary. You yeah, can't absolutely. convert yeah. anyone under 18. What's that? Can't convert anyone under 18. Yeah, and all that stuff. And, and yeah. you know, and Christians are going over there and trying to share the gospel because they love them. Well, That's and right. the Jews you know? are, the, the believing Jews are trying to reach their own people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. praise Once God, praise God that they're going to repent. Yeah, and we're seeing fruit being produced now. That's awesome. Um, and we're looking forward to it. Right. But and, and I think they're so, they are so surprised a lot of them anyways, that the evangelicals care so much. Yeah. That we care. Care so much yeah. about Israel. Yes. They think we, we have ulterior them, motives. You know I mean? Well, I don't know. A if lot they, of them do. Well, maybe, but I don't know. They're just like, really? You guys support? It's like, yeah, of course. I mean, probably do. not the, obviously not the believing ones, but the secular Jews think that evangelical Christians are like, yeah, we want to support the Jews because we want to bring the end times in. Yeah. Well, we just support them because we're supposed to anyway. Yeah, ex- absolutely. But, um, Anyways, that synagogue of Satan, it goes back to passages that we won't read all of it, but I'm going to give you some references that go right along with this. In Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul talks about how a Jew is not a Jew who is simply circumcised outwardly, but circumcised in the heart. So he could say, yeah, you're technically, genetically, you're offspring of Abraham, right? but you're not a child of Abraham according to the spirit. Right. Um, after faith. And that's why Jesus says that. Yeah, he does. And and that's another reference in uh, John eight. Yeah. 37 through 40. He's talking to the Jews and he does say you are Abraham's seed. Yes. And then he goes on and says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would receive me. So it's like on one hand, he's saying you are on the other hand, he's saying you're not Mm -hmm. because to be a descendant of Abraham, according to the flesh is not the same thing as having the same attitude and faith as Abraham had. Right. Uh, which and that's an awesome passage because he said, "I'm here bringing you good news," and he says, "You're wanting to kill me. You're trying to kill me." Yep. Abraham did not do that, and a number of commentators and I love this because I just missed it. But again, it's right there in Genesis. Going back to the Christophany. Whenever he appeared to Abraham, he came bearing good news. And what did yes. Abraham do? He got down on his knees and said, "Lord, come aside. You know, mm-hmm. we'll provide you with a meal. You know, come and sit and fellowship with me." And so we see Abraham's treatment of the son of God. And then we see the Jews in the first century and Jesus is saying, yeah, Abraham didn't do that. And he goes on and he says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Like, when did you see Abraham? And so all of this is going back Mm -hmm. to that Christophany in Genesis. So the preexistence of Jesus is beyond dispute in that passage. Absolutely. So to see that connection, it just opens up your eyes. Whenever you're reading the old Testament, 
Next time you see the angel of the Lord, next time you see the glory of the Lord uh, or the, the Shekinah, the, the Shekinah in the temple, think Jesus. Yes. So whenever the angels went to Abraham when they were going to destroy Sodom and Sodom, Abraham would have recognized him. That he was, he, Jesus, he, like he, he was, he did, he, rec- he did, he did recognize him. I don't know how exactly, but if he'd have seen him, maybe I, well, I think that if you're carefully reading Genesis, it appears that God appeared to Abraham multiple times. Yes. That Jesus appeared to him multiple times. That's the first time we really see him like appearing spelled embodied out. and yeah. spelled out in detail. Like it talks about him sitting down eating. It mentions three men, but it does say the Lord appeared to Abraham already. If yeah. you go further back in the account. So yes, he did recognize him, but, um, as far as lot, whenever the two angels came to Sodom, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because I don't think that he knew that they were angels initially, uh, because he was scared lot? for him. No. Yeah. He, he was scared that no, they I'm were talking about Abraham and Jesus. The yeah. No, yeah. No, no, no. That, well, the reason I mentioned it is because I don't think that. that there was anything in the way they looked. Mm, that they immediately, glowing, yeah, with yeah, and big wings. I don't think so. Or at least they weren't when they showed up at Lot's doorstep. No, they because weren't. He was like, "Y'all don't need to stay outside. Like, come in here. Yeah. You need to stay in here. You need to be safe." Because and if he knew they Lot were angels at that point, right? Yeah. So he, he maybe he, he didn't experience their visit the same way Abraham did. Well, maybe, I'm just saying. I don't know because he was righteous. He saw these men come into the city, and therefore. He was you taking know, him into his he's home like, to protect come him. Come in here. I'm trying to protect you. You need to stay yeah, here. Yeah. They're like, no, we're trying to protect and, you. And you could, need to get out. I don't know. It's it's not it's not a stretch. It, it's reading into the text a little bit, but it's not a stretch to say that maybe there were some unspoken words there. Maybe they said, Hey, Lot, you know, we're from Abraham, your uncle. He loved Abraham. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and if a messenger came from his uncle. I'm sure he would have been eager to yes. invite them into his house. So yes. anyways, a uh, little bit of a rabbit trail there, but a good one. Um, so Jewish persecution of Christians is hinted at there in the synagogue of Satan. And the last uh, thing that I wanted to talk about tonight, the last thing that's especially noted in the text is he says that if they are faithful unto death, they will have a crown of life. And then verse 11 gives us what some consider a problem statement. It says, he that overcomes shall not be heard of the second death. Now, overcoming, as I've talked about already, is a reference to practical overcoming. If you read all these letters in one setting, it's very clear that overcoming has to do with listening to the message that he's giving the church, repenting, acting upon it. Overcoming has to do with obeying the commandments of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So when it says... He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, does that mean that if you fail to overcome, let's say you're imprisoned and you're about to give your life for the Lord and you deny him, does that mean that you will be hurt Mm. by the second death? Some people will read that into the text, but what's most likely being done here is a figurative expression known as um, litides. It looks like litotes. If you spell it out, it's, L-I-T-O-T-E-S, but it's pronounced Lydides. And we have an example of it in scripture. It's basically an understatement meant to express a positive idea. Like in Acts 27.20, Paul talked about a storm whenever they're going to Rome, okay? And he mentions a no small tempest. Now he says it was no small tempest. It was a big storm. Okay, he was saying it was a really big storm. Mm. Okay, we do that all the time. 
in English. We use lie to these all the time, even if we've never heard the word. Right. So whenever it says here, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. Yeah. Like there are lots of ways that you, or I will, there's no way I'm going to forget, you know, I've told you a billion times, never exaggerate. <laughs> so yeah, we, we do exaggeration in different ways, but uh, perhaps that's what we have here. Now, if you were going to understand it in that sense, this is what it might say. Um, he that overcometh shall in no wise be hurt by the second death. So what he's trying to emphasize is, look, if you overcome, if you don't give into the temptation to deny me when you're imprisoned, yeah. then there's no way you're going to even get close to the second death. In fact, what's the positive idea being expressed there? You'll have a crown of life. Guess mm. that's what it says in verse number 10. The crown of life is not your basic Christian experience, as some people might think. The crown of life is superlative. We talked about the elders that are before the throne. There's 24 of them. There's a whole multitude before the throne, but the elders are crowned. They're the ones that cast forth their crowns. So this is a special reward given to people who persevere. Mm. So what if you take the ideas and you put them together, and I think that if you're reading this in the first century and you have sound doctrine as these people, these churches no doubt had the basics down, um, they're going to understand how this goes together. But unfortunately, we have bad theology that's been taught so mm. prevalently that when we read the text, we've been told this is what it means so long and well, we're just reading into a bad theology. So what it would be is um, he who overcomes shall in no wise, because that's literally in the Greek how it is. It's not just shall not. It's shall no wise. It's emphatic. He that overcometh shall no wise be heard of the second death. But far from that, I will give him a crown of life. So this is not some creative way to explain away the meaning of the text. This is something that a number of a lot smarter men have suggested, but Lydides is found in many places in scripture. Besides the example that I gave you in Hebrews, he mentions that, uh, you know, God is not unjust to forget your work. Now, what does it mean when he says he's not unjust? How could God ever be unjust? All right. Again, it's, it's a really big understatement when he says, God's not going to forget your work. He's saying, not only is God not just going to forget it, but God's going to reward you for all your hard work. Right. So here, when it says you're not going to be hurt by the second death, it's saying that you are going to experience life in a way that is above and beyond that, which all believers have freely. And so, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, Jesus said that he came to give us life and life abundantly to think of the crown of life as being crowned with a greater experience of eternal life is really insightful because there are many places where we see life being used and, and not a salvation sense. You know, it talks about uh, in Romans eight, he talks about the spirit is life, but he says that if you live after the flesh, mm. you shall die. Right. And he's talking to believers. So he's saying, if you live after the flesh, there is a sense in which you can die. Not eternally. He doesn't say eternally die, but there's a experience of death you can, you can have. But if you live after the spirit, then the spirit will always and only give you life. Mm. Now you already have eternal life in the sense that you're forgiven and you're going to heaven, but you can have that life experience now, but you'll also claim have that eternal life. Now you can't claim I'm never going to die because you're still going to have that. You can't rebuke it. What I'm saying, like you can't rebuke. You get your, he's giving you life, but you don't get to keep that forever. Your, your physical life. 
Like some oh, people yeah, today, yeah, 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 some people yeah. today are like, I'm just, I'm not sick. I'm not, I'm good. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sorry. I wasn't following you there, but I get what you're saying now. hundred percent. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to your physical life, I mean, Paul says like our body's wasting away. Right. He says it's wasting away daily, you know, the outward man, but the inner man is being renewed every day. So there's a difference between having life in terms of breathing, having food and living, you know, like we'll even say all the time, well, that's not living or this is living, you know, it reminds me of, I think Matthew McConaughey in a movie like this is living L I V I N. <laughs> but, uh, you know, wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. It came to mind. Anyway, somebody might appreciate that reference. Probably not. Probably not. But anyways, um, life means more than just being in heaven. As, as wonderful as that is, okay, I'm not downplaying that, but I'm saying that Jesus is so amazing that he's able to not just say, okay, guys, you're getting to heaven. That's it. Mm. I mean, Done's deal, the deal's done. Yeah, but he's able to say, look, heaven's awesome. Y'all have no idea how awesome it is. But could you believe that those who overcome will have an even awesomer, I know that's not a word, <laughs> they'll even have a more awesome experience? Yes, it requires um, overcoming. Mm. which in this case meant dealing with imprisonment and death. But I guarantee you that not only will I keep my initial promise to you to not let you go to hell ever to keep you from the second death, but I am going to lift you so much further above hell that I'm going to crown you with life. You know, if you think of it in terms of like a vertical analogy, you got hell at the bottom and you got the crown of life at the top, then you have, eternal life in the middle mm. in the sense of someone gets saved, but above and beyond being just saved, the ladder. there's the victorious life of a believer who's willing to be persecuted for their Lord. And he promises to reward them and all that that entails. We'll find out one day. Uh, that's something I'm shooting for. And that's not work salvation. Okay. I'm, I know I'm saved because I accepted Jesus when I was six years old. I, and that's a done deal. Um, that's what scripture teaches. I want that particular crown. Which one? The crown of life? The, yeah. The, the, I was persecuted and killed in prison. One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound very appealing, does it? Uh, but Paul was able to say like, I'm running. He's like, I'm running for that crown. And that crown is not just that which is given to persecuted believers. We've talked about this before. Uh, it also has to do with, you know, resisting the temptation to live a life of immorality while we're down here to, to be as priest and to be separate and holy before the world. So we shine our light and that's a hard thing to do. There's a lot of pressure from people around us, from family and friends, even to conform and be like everybody else. But if we overcome whatever adversity is placed in front of us, that's still overcoming. And he promises to everybody of any church that if they overcome, they'll receive um, a crown and their experience of life in the kingdom to come will be even better than someone who was saved, but didn't overcome. Right. I just finished reading Corey Ten Boom's book, um, Tramp, for, Tramp for Jesus. Tramp, Tramp for Jesus. And uh, chapter 17, she talks about visiting this um, congregation in Africa, um, in the city. And, and the country had just been taken over by this government that was oppressive, oppressive to the Christians. Um, and she said, uh, you know, the first sight. She was there. Some of the native Christians were commanded to come to the police station to be registered. But when they arrived, they were arrested. And during the night, they were secretly executed. Mm. The next day, the same thing happened. Um, and the third day, um, 
It was the third day and they, they realized, the people started to realize what was really going on. The fact that they were system, systematically being murdered. Um, it was the intent of the new government to eradicate all of them. All because she was there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and going to this church. Uh, she was preaching, basically, right? Um, and she talks about being there and and going through and talking about being in the camps and the the joy that she found um and she tells them the story that that happened and um it just it turned their minds around like at first everybody's freaking out and then in the end everybody's just joyful it's like okay gonna see jesus tomorrow. i'm gonna see jesus tomorrow and she said at the end of the chapter i think she said probably more than half of the people that were there uh, died. Mm. They came to see her. She said half of them died. And then the last night, she said the meeting was over um, and they're getting ready to leave and somebody softly in the back of the room started to sing um, Sweet By and By. Mm. And it's like, dang. It's crazy. It Talk is. about persecution. Yeah. That's in, in our day and age. Um, you know, we have brothers and sisters all around the world that, that are going through exactly that. That's right. And, and those people, hmm. those people friends. are not promised that they will just simply go to heaven. I right. mean, that, I mean, these people are promised by Jesus. Like I will compensate you. Yeah. Yes. Like he doesn't have to, Mm-mm. like, I mean, and <laughs> we all know that we don't deserve anything because right. of our sin, but that's what he's promising these Smyrnans. He's like, my children, you're going to go through a hard time, but I promise you, I am going to make up for it. Uh, the way I paraphrased it, and this may sound silly, but this is the way it came across as I read it. Uh, he's basically saying, buckle up, children, because it's going to get rough, but yeah. it will all be over soon, and I will make it up to you more than you know. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's honestly a message that he gives to all of us, but especially to those sorts of people. Yeah. And, uh, and I... I can't understand that because I've not been in it. But if you're listening to this, um, we have the same Lord and Savior. And he's the same today as he was yesterday. And he's going to be the same awesome Savior tomorrow. And his promise to give eternal life freely to those who believe. He's going to keep that no matter what you do, no matter how much we fail. But for those who are victorious in him, and we don't have that strength in and of ourselves either. Like he doesn't say like, all right, I'm just going to leave you to it. Um, He promises all throughout his word that he will give us the words to say in that hour. He promises that he will give us the strength to stand. Uh, Those who in the power of the Lord make their stand for Jesus's name. um, Those people are going to be cheered on at the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to be there cheering for you. If that's one Mm -hmm. of you listening to this, we have listeners in areas that are. Yes. Like I guarantee, I guarantee you when you, when you go up there to receive your crown, uh, no one's going to be cheering louder for you than me. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that, um, I don't know who knows. It may come to the U S eventually, but that's not something we're going to worry about. I'm not going to worry about it because the Lord has got us in his hand and I'm looking for his return soon. Maranatha. Mm. Amen. And so God bless y'all. Thank you so much for listening. And next time we continue our study, we'll talk about the church at Pergamos.